Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we indeed do praise you as we have throughout this service. And Father, we pray that you would take this small portion of what you have given us and that you you would use it for the good of your church, the extension of your kingdom, and for the glory of your name. And we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you would remain standing for the reading of God's word, uh, we are pleased to welcome back Dr. Michael Allen to the pulpit. Good morning. It's a a pleasure to be with you yet again and uh, to be an old friend in the introduction. I don't often get called old anything, so it's, it's a delight to be with you as an old friend. And this morning, as we listen to God's word, we're going to be paying attention close attention to Hebrews 1, verse 5, through Hebrews 2, verse 4. Hear God's word. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I'll be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up, like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same, and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in in praying for God's blessing upon our time in his word. Father, we trust that your word, as you've told us, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And if we're honest, we come needing your surgery. And so we pray that you would pierce from bone to marrow, that you would cut, and that you would bring about that glorious newness, that freedom and beauty that is found in new life in Christ. We thank you that we are sons and daughters and that we hear your word not as those 
condemned and outside you, but we hear it as those adopted, as those who are listening to a Father who loves them. And so we pray that we might hear it with ears of faith, with hearts of hope, with lives of love. And in this time, we pray that you would strengthen us for that end and for your Son's name. We pray in the great name of our Savior, our King, and our Priest, Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Well, this is a tough text, and perhaps it's helpful to consider a tough story as a way in. Some of you, if you've studied psychology, sociology, behavioral development in some form in the last 30 or 40 years, will have heard of the marshmallow test. One of the most famous experiments in the modern era. In the 1960s, a man named Walter Mischel ran what has become a famous study on how it is certain behaviors are formed. The test is quite simple, really. He put a group of small children in a closed room through which he could observe by way of a one-way mirror, and he offered each of them a marshmallow on a chair, along with a promise that if they could wait 15 minutes, there would be more. If they could refrain from taking that single, solitary lump of sugar and throwing it down their mouth, they would have greater things. And this began what was a long study of the lives and the development of these children. And what was discovered was those few children who were able to restrain themselves and wait to defer gratitude, as it were, and gratification, and to receive more marshmallows later were the same children who years down the road were able to exercise self-control by and large. Here's how... One account in 2012 put the sociological and behavioral uh, influence of this study upon our recent culture. An article in Business Week put it this way. Mitchell's work has been enormously influential, making its way into popular culture, most recently in the romantic comedy The Five-Year Engagement. And it's done so in a way that few academic studies have. It's changed the way educators and psychologists think about success. The lesson is that it's not just intelligence that matters, but self-control and patience and being able to tame one's impulses. From the desire to eat the marshmallow to the desire to blow off an exam or to have an affair. It's a tough study. The takeaway, of course, for decades now has largely been that certain people have that innate ability to restrain themselves. And they'll be able to wait for more marshmallows. And later, as they develop, they'll be able to wait and refrain from doing terrible, horrific acts or the many small absurdities that we fall into from day to day. Others, of course, eat the marshmallow right away. And they grow up to give in impulsively, intuitively, to thing after sinful thing, distracting thing after distracting thing. It's a difficult study, and this is a difficult text. 
It's a difficult text, not just because it talks about angels and that freaks us out as modern people. It's a difficult text because when it brings about its very direct main point in chapter 2, verse 1, it is a startling and somewhat scary point. After weaving through these various statements about the sun and the angels that seem cosmic and apocalyptic and strange, it then says something very blunt, very straightforward, and seemingly very demanding. Therefore, we, he's speaking to the church, of course, the Hebrews, those who have been brought out, we believe, from paganism, likely in Rome, who have followed the way of the the Holy One of Israel who have named Christ as Savior. He's speaking to the church and he says, therefore, we, the church, must pay much closer attention to what we've heard. We must be attentive lest we drift from it. Lest we drift from it. It reminds you, if, if you know Holy Scripture, of that statement in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where we're told that we need to be renewed in our minds so that we might not be conformed to the ways of this world. Neutrality not being an option. You won't be left alone. You either must be renewed within or you will conform to the ways of the world. But notice notice the seeming scare point. Lest we drift away from it. Verse 2 makes a comparison that seems to make matters worse. It speaks of an old call, an old demand to Israel in the era before Christ's coming. It speaks of a time when the angels delivered a message. Hebrews 1, of course, has spoken of how God's spoken many times and in various ways through the prophets, and now he's spoken in a son. And this is reflecting on that prophetic time of what we'd call the Old Testament. And at the height of that time, among the greatest of its gifts, was an occasion where God had freed his people from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out so gloriously, as we spoke of earlier, by his strong arm, defeating Pharaoh and the Egyptian armies at the Red Sea. And he brought them to his mountain where he met with them. And he spoke to Moses And he gave them the gift of his holy law. And as Jewish lore and legend have it, as this audience or congregation would surely know it, it was believed that the law was a gift through the angels. And so here, the author reminds them of a time when the angels brought a demand or a call. And he describes how serious it was in verse 2. Since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. Think back of those stories of Israel. Every word the angels delivered proved to be reliable. You'll remember, of course, they delivered the law in the book of the covenant. That we're to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That we're to love our neighbors as ourselves. And of course, that if we do so, we will continue to enjoy the land God gives us. But if we do not do so, we will be punished just as God has punished the pagan nations of Canaan or the Egyptians from whence we came. 
And it's proved reliable, we're told, because that's exactly what happens, isn't it? Israel fails to set apart their hearts wholly unto the Lord. Israel fails to love one another over time. And they're judged. Every transgression, every disobedience received its just retribution. But the Old Testament wasn't a time of consistent failure. Oftentimes we get this idea in our minds that in the Old Testament they managed to screw everything up. They were sort of that child. And thankfully, we now, by the Holy Spirit, we sort of get it right, right? Um, We fare better, as it were. It's worth noting there were great moments in the Old Testament. Israel so frequently trusted the Lord. You'll remember, of course, they were there at the edge of the Red Sea. And they'd been brought out. And the greatest army in the entire world encircled them there. There they are between death and the water, which in the ancient world symbolizes death. They're stuck until God opens up the sea. Now, I don't know about you, but I've often thought about this. I've lived in South Florida. I've lived up in Chicago. I've considered what would it be like if a waterway opened so that you could walk through from South Florida to the Bahamas. And would I be willing to sort of trek out across through it? Would I be willing if from Chicago, Lake Michigan opened up such that I could walk across to the western shore of Michigan? That would be a little distressing, frankly. It would be strange. It would be daunting. And what we see and what we're told in Exodus 14 is that it takes faith for Israel to walk across. They're desperate, but we're told at the end of Exodus 14, they believed the Lord and trusted in his servant Moses. They started really well, but they drifted. They did not finish well. They did not persevere in that faith. We're told they murmured. We're told they longed for the ease and regularity of slavery back in Egypt, ironically enough. They did not continue to entrust themselves in faith to the Lord and Deliverer of the Exodus. When you consider that, the entire story, and you see the particular nature of their error, that it was an error to continue in faith, you can see the precise demand here. We're being called not to begin the life of faith, though the Bible tells us that elsewhere, we're being called to pay closer attention as we continue in the life of faith. Not only that, but the Hebrews, as we learn later in chapter 10, are being called to continue the walk of faith in particularly dicey circumstances. If you've read this epistle, you'll know that in Hebrews 10, we're told that some of them apparently have been imprisoned for being Christians. We can't date this exactly, and and we're not even sure of the precise location. More, More likely than not, it's written to a group in Rome. And it's during one of the phases of persecution that came in various waves throughout the first century, the most famous being the Neuronic persecution, where Christians would be crucified outside the city gates and used as lampposts. Well, in one of these persecutions, apparently, these Christians are being imprisoned. And the catchy thing about 
prison in the ancient world, of course, is that it's a make-or-break reality based on whether or not family or friends are going to come feed you. There is no cafeteria in the Roman prison. Someone from outside brings you sustenance or you die, and that's not Rome's problem. They've got a dilemma that's recounted here in in Hebrews 10. Some of them were imprisoned and others were willing to go and minister to them, we're told. They took them food. They outed themselves by going to care for their fellow Christians. Even though outing themselves and doing that puts them in exactly the same jeopardy. As soon as people realize, hey, that's not your brother. Why are you bringing him food? Right? That's not your mom or your child. Why are you bringing them food? As soon as they realize it's a common faith, a faith that has led to one being in prison, it's a faith that leads to the other being in jeopardy. And so this letter is written... This sermon is sent to a congregation that is in dicey circumstances. Persecution is active and real. It's tangible and painful. And in the midst of that, the call is to continue in faith by paying much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift from it. That's exactly the danger, isn't it? When we're in hot water. The danger of drift, that distraction will lead us away from focus upon God, or that alternative options will lead us toward some other substitute, that our love for the Lord, a love that's meant to be holistic, to involve all of the heart, all of the mind, all of the strength and body, that that love would be severed and splintered and shared and scattered about amongst many. But God's a jealous God, we're told. In chapter 12, the author comes back to this comparison. And and I want to read a few verses from that chapter to you. This is at the very end of Hebrews. Comparing Israel of old with this congregation here and now, yet again, beginning in Chapter 12, verse 18, and reading through the end of the chapter. He says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you've come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See then that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he's promised 
Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God reverent or acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. The same idea, the same comparison, the same dynamic is brought up yet again, isn't it? They did not endure in entrusting themselves to God. They received God's word through the angels on the mountain. It describes, of course, all the pyrotechnics of the smoke and the lightning and the thunder and what seems to be a very scary or difficult circumstance, a shocking, awe-inspiring circumstance. But notice, we've not come to a Sinai with lightning. We've not come to a mountain having come through a Red Sea. But apparently we've come to a greater thing. Remember that account of Jesus' crucifixion. He was upon a mount. God met us there. The skies were darkened. Earthquakes occurred. The temple shook. There was cosmic, startling manifestation of God's glory and His presence. We have come to something more real, to a, what the author here in chapter 12 tells us is a word from the very heavens that we've received from a son, not from an angel. Therefore, let us pay much closer attention, lest we, like the Israelites of old, fail to endure. You know, in recent years, there's been further reflection upon that marshmallow test. That article I mentioned that appeared in 2012 in Business Week magazine described a new study, a further study that looked at an entirely new angle on behavioral development. I want to read to you a description of this. A new study suggests that we may be taking an incomplete lesson from Walter Mitchell's work. Celeste Kidd, a cognitive science graduate student at the University of Rochester, is the lead author on the paper. When she was younger, Kidd spent time working in shelters for homeless families. She began to wonder how growing up in that sort of setting, full of change and uncertainty, might shape the way kids responded to the sort of situation Mitchell set them up in. Quote, working there gave me some strong intuitions about what kids who were in that sort of situation would do, given the marshmallow task. I'm fairly sure those kids would eat the marshmallow right away. Not because they were weak-willed, but because very little in their upbringing had given them much reason to believe that adults would do what they said they would. What was missing from Mitchell's famous experiment, Kid argues, was trust. And so she developed a two-layer approach, whereas Mitchell simply tests, can they refrain from eating the marshmallow? Kid went one step further back and started the kids in two groups 
both of which were presented an item, and again, the promise of more if they refrained from using the item for 15 minutes. But of the kids who did so, only half received what they were promised. The other half were told, sorry, it didn't work out. Then they tested the results to see how the failed or the kept word of the adult supervisor shaped the future behavior of the children. As it turns out, we read, Mitchell himself has looked at the role trust and confidence play in a person's ability to delay gratification. But the descriptions of his work have focused mainly on determination and grit. In kids' study, the willingness to wait is more of a situational trait. Rather than being engaged in a desperate struggle against their own appetites, the young subjects of her study were carefully calculating the likelihood they'd actually get a second marshmallow. Her work suggests that getting kids to be better at waiting in the lab and in life is a matter of persuading them that there's something worth waiting for. I want to suggest that's exactly the way the author to the Hebrews is compelling us and calling us forth in obedience not simply demanding grit and sheer restraint for the sake of restraint, but calling us, as he will again in chapter 3, verse 1, to consider Jesus, to obey out of faith that God our Father will grant us all things in Christ. And so I want to consider with you the way in which we are called to obey or to press on and endure by faith in these verses. You know, oftentimes we speak of Christianity as being a religion of faith over and against the other religions, the great religions of the world. And we note rightly that it's unique to our religion, to our beliefs as taught by the Bible, that faith is at the very center of what God calls from us and expects of us. That's true. Faith is central. But oftentimes, I suspect, if you're anything like me and the people that I seem to observe, we tend to locate faith in every place but today. We think of faith in terms of the past. There was a man a long time ago in a land far, far away, and he really was God, and he did wonderful things, and uh, lame people walked, and blind people saw And the religious were confronted and the marginalized were brought in. And eventually he died for our sins, a ransom for many. And he rose from the dead in glory and he ascended on high. And we confess him in faith as our Redeemer. And we oftentimes speak of faith in the future tense. There will be a day when that one will return again in glory. And when we will be brought before the Father's throne a righteous and just throne. And we will stand there and we will receive joy and blessing and honor only because he will speak for us. And he will stand as our advocate, as our high priest. And united to him, we will be told that we are a beloved son or a beloved daughter and that we might enter into the Father's glory. We oftentimes, I think, locate faith with regard to the past 
and with respect to the future. Much more rarely do we think about the call to faith this day. This day, today. When I was in high school, I was an athlete, and I ran track and field. And in particular, my favorite race was running the 4x400-meter relay. Those of you who've either run track or uh, been to meets know it's the last event of a track meet. It's the most exciting moment. It's the only occurrence during the meet where one thing is going on, everybody's gathered round. It's the last event, so oftentimes the score who's going to win the meet is dependent upon this. And if you grew up and, and did this as I did in South Florida, meets occur in the late afternoon, and so more often than not, this is occurring as you have a beautiful sunset across a Floridian sky. It's glorious. It's also terrible played a lot of sports growing up, and there's nothing more inhumane than the 4x400-meter relay. 100-meter sprinters, of course, are the most famous runners. They run an absurdly fast sprint down the edge of a football field, as it were, right? But that's nothing, because the 400-meter race is four times as long, and you're allowed to be about two seconds slower over the entirety of it, right? It's prolonged pain. It's absurd in terms of what's expected. And in the relay, four people do this sequentially, passing the hot potato of a baton. I ran third leg in our relay team. And I remember, as somebody who was in a lot of sporting situations, a lot of moments of intense anxiety, and nothing ever topped those terrible moments as I sat there with my hand outstretched behind me, sweating, waiting to receive that evil baton. And some 40-some-odd seconds later, nothing was as glorious in all my sporting moments as getting rid of the hot potato and handing it off to the lucky fool who got to ran the anchor leg. Why was it so anxiety-inducing? Because... While it's a relay, it is not a team event. It is a sequential individual event. When I am running around that track, I'm running completely on my own, and my teammate does absolutely nothing to help me. You are out there. No help, no lifeline, nobody to lean on. You either have to maintain or make up for a gap. Oftentimes we think about the Christian life that way, I think. Jesus, we're told, is the author and perfecter of faith. He's the pioneer of our salvation, Hebrews says. He, he goes before us, and he ran a great leg. He got us a lead, and he passed that baton. And the apostles, were they had their moments, mind you, Peter, of course, and whatnot, but they were pretty impressive. And we're told in Acts that the faith spread like a brush fire. And the baton's been passed, and the baton's been passed. And I suspect most of us, in moments of temptation and overwhelmedness, we feel like I did on those late afternoons as a teen. We feel like as a Christian, as a person of faith, we've been passed a baton, and we're out there running on our own. And that's a scary thing. That's a tiring thing. Things can go badly 
Things can go badly when you succeed. Because you start to think that you're actually capable of pulling it off. Right? You cease becoming an enjoyable person to be around. Things go bad when you realize you do crash and burn and you do lose some of that lead, as it were. And you begin to despair and wonder if you're even really on the team. Do you really possess the faith? Are you really in Christ? You start to question these and so many other things. When we see ourselves, when we imagine ourselves running the Christian life alone, things go poorly very quickly. What's the good news for people who need to endure in faith and are so prone to try and do it on our own? Very briefly, I want to point you back to those strange statements where the sun is compared to the angels in chapter 1. They're not just statements about the sun, but what we're told in verse 3 of chapter 2, they're statements about our great salvation. And what I need to know in my moment of trial, and what you need to know in your moment of temptation, is not that God wants grit from you, but that God will preserve you because you trust His Son. Because you know His Son is presently active on your behalf. Consider verse 6. Here we read, when He brings the firstborn into the world, He says, let all God's angels worship Him. The Son, unlike the angels, is worthy of worship. And as we know that, we're going to be increasingly led to turn away from other things that we value most highly in this culture. And if we're honest, that we're led to value so highly ourselves. We're going to be more capable of saying no to the money, the sex, the power, the fame, the self-adulation that we're promised in so many ways if we realize that there's something greater, someone of greater honor and value. The one who alone is worthy to be worshipped. Consider verse 8. In verse 8 we read, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. It's only in knowing that Jesus rules right now that we're going to have the backbone to endure when we're being mistreated, when we'd like to go vengeful, when we'd like to hit back, when we'd like to simply give up because things don't seem fair and they're not working out for, you know, godly folks who want to do right. It's not going to be enough to simply have grit and determination. We need to know that Christ rules. And that even the worst tyrant, even the most difficult situation, doesn't discount the fact that he is king of kings and lord of lords. And that Our suffering, as chapter 12, verses 5 and following tells us, is for our discipline, not for our harm. And it's a sign of God's fatherly sovereignty, not of his failure to be aware or to be in charge. Consider verse 11. We're remarkably told that the Lord has laid the foundations of the work. He's even made the heavens. They will perish, but you alone remain. They'll all wear out like a garment. Like a robe, you'll roll them up. Like a garment, they'll be changed. But you are the same and your years will have no end. 
It's only in knowing Christ alone to be forever and eternal and constant that we are going to have the strength to stand against the supposed right side of history, the trend of the day, the end thing that would lead us away from God and his laws. And so in chapter 13, verse 8, the author comes back and reminds us that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. And just as we trusted him then and looked to his help later, so we can entrust ourselves to him now. Or consider verse 13, finally. Here we're told, to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand? until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Those words from Psalm 110, that remarkable picture of not just a king and not just an eternal king who continues reigning, but a triumphant king. The portrait of Christ as ruler is not one who simply outlasts or continues along with his foes, but eventually who finds his foes a footstool to his feet, who wins. And it's only in knowing that Christ is victorious over sin, death, and the devil, that he's victorious now, we're told, in 1 Corinthians 15, because of his glorious resurrection from the dead. It's only in knowing that victorious Christ that we're going to have comfort and peace, that our sins, that our failures that our defeats don't ruin this whole thing. That my bad leg doesn't mean the entire team loses. Here in these four and throughout God's word in so many other ways, we're called to consider Jesus. And we're called to be attentive to the fact that the most significant thing occurring on any given day will surely not be reported in the newspaper or the news. That Jesus Christ is alive. That he's active. That he's Lord of the church. I was meeting last month with a group of pastors at a denominational assembly and was speaking with them about what we call sustainability. And the statistics are scary. We hear often of of young people leaving the church But the real issue is those who are zealous, those who are committed, those who are volunteers or vocational workers who are most ardent to serve the Lord young in life and more often than not are out the door before too long. The average pastor lasts less than five years. And typically those who leave don't come back to the ministry. They may not leave the faith, but the fire, the vigor, that endurance and stamina is gone. And for different reasons. Some moral failure, some political overwhelmedness, some relational challenges, some financial struggles, all sorts. But if you look at studies done on those who do not sustain their ministry, those who don't endure, that majority who leave in less than five years, There is one statistic that across the board is true. Those who don't last are those who have maintained absolutely no communion with God and Christ. They have had no personal prayer life. They have had 
no personal Bible study. There has been no devotion. Now, there's a lot more to ministry than praying or reading your Bible. You have to care for people. You have to minister to them. And there's a lot more to the Christian life than simply having faith. God wants you to obey Him. God wants you to serve your neighbor. God wants you to evangelize. But there's a common lesson there that the only enduring, the only sustainable, the only persevering life is going to be a life that is led by faith at every step. By communing with Christ and considering all that he is for us. And by owning today, seizing hold of who he promises to be and what he's doing now on our behalf. And so this morning, I want to ask to you that question that haunted Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You may know of Bonhoeffer, the famous pastor and theologian and teacher who was martyred by the Nazis for his opposition to Hitler, and who in his letters and papers from prison asked that pointed question, that question that kept him faithful to the end. Who is Jesus Christ for us today? His answer, of course, was that he is the same today as he was yesterday and as he's pledged to be forever. But each and every day, whether we're facing terrible persecution like Bonhoeffer and these Hebrews, or simply the ordinary temptations, trials, and difficulties of all Christian life, we need to return to that question. Who is Jesus Christ for us today? And this text reminds us, he's one who's active and engaged on our behalf. He's one who we're to consider more closely that we might entrust ourselves to him more fully. And now, he's one we're called to praise to sing unto, to offer ourselves, our hearts, our lives to in joy and in love. And so I'd invite you, as we respond to His Word, to consider how firm a foundation we have in this Lord who's active and alive, this Lord who reigns and rules, this Lord who is present in our midst, this Lord who can sustain you this day and forever. It's found in number 94 of your hymnals. Please join, please stand and join in singing How Firm a Foundation.